0: If you've got your Bibles, do this. Go to the book of Micah, and I'll help you out with where it is. It's in the Old Testament, and if you, if you went from the back of the Old Testament, it's the seventh book from the back of the Old Testament. So, maybe the seventh book from, backwards from Matthew, if you want to think about it that way. So, that's uh, uh, Micah. He's one of the prophets to Israel, what we call one of the minor prophets There are 12 of the minor prophets, and they show up at the end of the Old Testament, and they're not minor because they're less important. They're just minor because they're shorter than the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we're looking at where the prophets in the Old Testament uh, foretell, uh, predict, or prophesy the coming of Jesus. And so this morning, we're looking at Micah. And Chad said earlier, if you were here, he was talking about Advent. And Advent means arrival. And this is uh, foretelling the arrival of Jesus. And what we find out from Micah is where it is that Jesus will come from. Uh, That's one of the things that Micah gives us, amongst several other things that he's going to tell us. And so, this this Advent, this first coming of Jesus, Micah tells where it will be. And and we also, in the passage, we'll see there's this um, longing or this expectation for Jesus' second Advent, the, the return of Jesus that we look forward to now. And so, when, when Jesus will come and he'll burst in on the scene again, this is what Micah is talking about. So, I want to do this. I'm going to read Micah 5, uh, the first few verses of it, and we'll come, come back and, and talk through it. I'm actually, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Micah 5, 1 through 4, and then kind of the first bit of uh, verse 5, and you, you can read on through 6 and that later if you want to, but I'm, that's all I'm going to read. Here's the way that Micah says it. It says, now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us to hear the words this morning from Micah, um, the ancient words of a yet even more ancient king to come. Father, pray you'd kindle in us the, the deep desires that you have set for what it would mean to stand face-to-face with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'll t- tell you a little bit about uh, Micah. Uh, well, I'll tell you the little that we know about Micah. He introduces himself at the very beginning of, of this book, this prophecy, uh, which turns out to be some oracles and some sermons. He calls himself Micah of Moreshef. Micah literally means... Um, Who is like God? That's what his name means. Who who can compare to God? And Moresheth, the thing that it tells us um, is that usually you would describe yourself as so-and-so who is the son of another so-and-so. Here, that Micah would tell us not who his father is, but the town he is from, tells us that he's probably an outsider. He, he doesn't have a family that's worth noting, and so he tells, this is where I'm from. And, and in other words, he, Micah's kind of a nobody in the midst of a bunch of somebodies, if you, if you can say it that way. And he's a prophet who is in the 7th, 8th century, and he is um, writing or speaking warnings to the southern kingdom of Israel. By this time, Israel has split. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I think I said it wrong earlier. He, he's writing to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom's listening in on what he has to say. And the northern kingdom, Assyria, it's around 720, 722. Assyria's come and they're going to overtake this northern kingdom and they're going to wipe them out, wipe out Samaria. And so he's writing to them to say, hey, Um, the end is near for you but he also knows jerusalem and the southern kingdom's listening in and he will stop every now and then and he'll look and go and the end's coming for you as well the problem is during this time everybody was living in the midst of prosperity nobody thought that uh, crisis was on the doorstep Oh, they'd heard of Assyria, but these people would say about themselves, we're God's people. God's not going to let anything happen to us. And besides, we're all rich right now, and it's all going well. And Micah shows up, and he says, hey, look, you are you, not—you don't understand all of who you have been and all this great history that you have and all the stories that you tell about yourself as God's people, all that, all that's coming to an end. There's going to be a nation that comes, and they're going to come and live in your houses, and they're going to drag you off as slaves, and, and oh, by the way, southern kingdom, that's going to happen to you too. Just because you live in Jerusalem doesn't mean you're ultimately going to be safe. This is what... Micah's been saying for all of four chapters. And so he turns to him in verse 5-1, which actually in the Hebrew Bible, it's a little complicated. The first verse is actually a part of the the chapter before it. He says, now muster your troops. And this isn't like assemble an army. What he's looking at is he's looking into the future and he's looking at a time when there's not an army left. There's just... A few abled body men that they could put together as a raiding party. That's really what he's talking about. Muster the troops, O daughter of troops. He's talking to Jerusalem. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They're going to strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And and this um, is is a picture of the absolute humiliation that's going to come to Jerusalem and to God's people called Israel. There's going to be a king that comes. He's going to step onto the stage. He's going to come and take Israel's king, bow him before him, and slap him in the face. Utter and total humiliation. The people of Abraham, the people led by Moses, those that were part of the uh, Davidic dynasty, and the glory of, of, uh, and wisdom and riches of Solomon, all that's coming to an end and it's going to come to an end in a way that is going to be utterly humiliating. It's going to come in a way where where Israel even though you think nothing bad can happen to you now you're going to be a place you're going to be in a place of utter helplessness. This is what he's saying to him. And then in chapter 5 verse 2 it's the hinge of really everything that Micah's been saying. He's been talking about the destruction to come and the crisis to come and the helplessness to come. But as with all the prophets, there's always hope that's going to be announced. Even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of hard things, there's a hope that's always going to be announced because God is always going to be faithful his people. You know, as we were thinking about the Old Testament prophecies and those that we would talk about um, during this Advent season, we picked Micah 5. And and Micah 5, really one of the questions is, why is Micah 5 in the Bible? Why, Why does it sit here? What's the purpose of God including these words to Micah that when they're the time they're written really would have been very cryptic to the people that read them. And, and really, uh, for about 700 years, the readers of Micah would have wondered what it is that Micah was speaking about because of the way he says what he says. Well, look, look at it again in, in verse 2. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, tell you a little secret there, if ever you're called upon to read um, scripture, and you have to do that publicly, and you come across a name that's really hard to pronounce because it has too many consonants, like Epaphra, um, just say whatever comes out of your mouth. Be real confident and move on. <laughs> Everyone will think you got it right. Oh, Bethlehem, Epaphra, you were too little to be among the clans of Judah. Oh, oh, Bethlehem, you know, oh, little town of Bethlehem, that's where that comes from. Five or six miles south of Jerusalem. But from you is going to come forth for me, God says. One who's to be a ruler in Israel, a, a, a king is coming, in other words. And notice how he describes this king whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You know, it's interesting if you were to go back into the Old Testament and you were to look at how some of this language is being used from old and um, from ancient days. It's language used to describe... That God is eternal. Hey Bethlehem. Oh little town of Bethlehem. From you. Is going to come forth. One who's from the ancient days. One who will step out of eternity past. Into this little town of Bethlehem. This is what Micah is foretelling. When he uses the the word, oh, Bethlehem, he's actually using, he's calling Bethlehem by Bethlehem's oldest name that we know of. You find it in Genesis chapter 36. It's the old name of Bethlehem. You, You see, the for four chapters now, the, the dark has been setting in. You know, the darkness has settled over the land and the darkness has settled over the people. And here, as he writes this, oh, 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 Bethlehem, but not just, oh, Bethlehem five miles down the road from Jerusalem. I, he's speaking about, oh, ancient Bethlehem, oh, old Bethlehem. And it's like the light is shining. It's like the dawn is breaking. A new day is being announced. And what's being kindled inside of the readers and the hearers is a king's coming. Like a proper king. And you would have known if you lived in those times, if anyone said Bethlehem, you'd know two things about Bethlehem. It was where Rachel, the wife that that Jacob loved, was buried. And is where David was born. In fact, only two people in the Bible were explicitly told to have been born in Bethlehem. David's one, and then a thousand years later, Jesus will be born. And when Micah is calling forth to Bethlehem, he, he's, he's seeking to kindle in you, the reader, hope. He's seeking to draw to the surface a hope that lies deeply buried in all of us. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, will say in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is eternity written on all of our hearts. There's a longing that we all have for that which is eternal. Because we've been created in the image of God, we long for and yearn for that which will last forever. And The reality is, in the meantime, we all know that there's something wrong with the world all around us. Tim Keller tells this story. Of the. Friendship between. J.R.R. Tolkien. And C.S. Lewis. That back in the 1920s. Uh, late 1920s. These were young guys. They were. Uh, professors at Oxford. They shared with each other. A love for for literature and story and, and old tales. And Tolkien was a Christian, and Lewis at this time was an atheist. And they used to take walks together at the end of the day, and Tolkien was talking to Lewis and would often talk to him about just the fascination that he had with old tales and old myths and old legends. And he would say to Lewis, Lewis, you know, you're a modern man. You believe uh, good and evil. You, you know, a relative. You, you, um, you know, you believe we're all here by accident, some happy accident. By accident, nonetheless, everything's a product of natural selection. Uh, that damul- damsels in distress and, and slaying dragons and returning kings. All that's just a bunch of fairy tales. Except... Except the reality is, despite you knowing better, Lewis, you're really moved by these stories. You're you're really moved by the ancient legends and the ancient myths and and the heroes that come out of the unlikely places to overturn the injustices and to rescue their people. In fact, not only are you moved by it, you're deeply moved. And so, Tolkien basically says, hey, Lewis, this is my theory about why you're so moved about these things. That even though you're a modern man, even though you have all the modern sensibilities, and you tell yourself that you should know better, he says these stories, it, th- though they're not true in the sense of being, uh, you know, factually true or historically true, we know that, They are stories that nonetheless are true in another sense. He says what they do is they're stories that point you to something that's true. They point you to something that's real. There's an underlying reality that all of these stories carry the echo of. And then he outlines what he means. He says this. First, these stories all say, for example, that the world's under an evil spell. And our problems are not to just be dealt with by education and, and science and technology and uh, social reforms. You know, let's all just work together. And can't we all just get along? We know that doesn't work. In fact, we see it played out in the world even right now. So he says there's an evil spell. There's a sorcerer, somebody who has, has us under an evil spell. And we know that, and all these stories point to that. Secondly, these stories point to the fact that the material world, you know, the physical world, all the things that we can see with our eyes, there's more than that. That there's something just beyond it. There's something that's supernatural. There's something that is in a spiritual realm. And we we don't just live at the mercy of what we can see. There are things we cannot see that are at play. And thirdly, we know we need a sacrificial love to save us. Because we're not going to be able to do it ourselves. We've tried. And we find that we fail over and over again. And over again. And then what Tolkien does is he frames the gospel in light of this. He says, "Look, the world is under an evil spell, but God sends His Son into the world, and He's born in the most unlikely place, and He's born in a manger, and He's not at all the kind of person you think that could do something. But He takes on these powers and, and, and brings with Him what is supernatural, and He takes on the evil forces." And he takes on the oppressive powers and the principalities of this world, the Romans and the Pharisees, and he he takes on the demons. And finally, on the cross, he goes to the cross. And it looks like evil defeats him, and yet he's raised from the dead. And then he brings together a band of people, and he's renewing their lives and says, through this, I'm going to renew the whole world. And Lewis looks at him and says, I've never heard the Christian story told like that. He says, you're right. It's just like all the other stories. Just another one of those wonderful stories that points to the underlying reality. And that's where Tolkien stops him and says, no. Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the other stories point. He says, it's different because this story is not just a story. This story became historical. This story became a fact. Jesus Christ was born. This is the king you're after. This is the answer to the longing in your heart. This is the hero we're after in all the stories of the heroes. This is the returning king we long for in all those stories of the idea of a king, an ancient king who ruled. Lewis, this is what you have been longing for. Keller goes on to say well this this is the ancient king and the memory trace in our hearts of the human race because we remember in a sense there was an ancient and wonderful and great king Jesus Christ is the beautiful prince your heart wants and yearns for every time you see it in the movies every time you read it in a book and it resonates and now Micah, he describes the, the longed-for ruler here in chapter 5, verse 2, who's coming from little Bethlehem. And he's, the, he's an ancient king coming forth from old, from ancient days. I love that. And he's also a future king. Is coming to... Be the ruler in Israel and ultimately the whole world. Verses four and five, he'll shepherd the flock, and then it describes the characteristics of this shepherd. Not that he, just, not just that he has a staff and that he lives on a hill and he knows how to talk to his sheep and and no, 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 it's the most overqualified shepherd in all the history of shepherds. He. He comes in the strength of the Lord. He comes in the majesty of the name of the Lord. That's what's on his resume. And they'll dwell secure for now. And it shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. And so why is this in here? Well, one, it was true that in Micah's day, the darkness was coming and he He's saying this. He's speaking of the Messiah to come. It's the, it's the light. It's the, it's the hope in the days to come. But what happens is, as this sits at the end of the Bible for 700 years. And then you get to the New Testament, and in Matthew chapter 2, in one of our famous Christmas stories, you know, that we tell every year, you read about these wise men who came from the east. So, so hope, it, it's been described or, or defined as uh, a continual looking forward to the eternal world. I like that. A continual looking forward to the eternal world. That's what the magi were doing. So, you see, they were looking for, they were... Um, hoping to find the king of the Jews, that they, they, uh, they, they were looking, they were anticipating. In fact, they'd spent their lifetime, they'd arranged their whole life around the arrival of the king of the Jews, and a star appears, and they follow the star, and they find themselves uh, there in Jerusalem, and they come to the house of the king, who is Herod. Now, here's what we know about these guys. If we stick to the text, they're probably not kings. You know, we three kings of Orient are probably not kings. May not even be three of them. But they come from the east, probably from Babylon or from Persia. They're, They're spoken of as wise. They're the intellectual elites of their day. They're astrologers. You know, they've been looking at the stars and they've been trying to read the signs. And not that the Bible ever invites any of us to, uh, you know, get gaze into our astrological charts. It's not doing that. But we do find in God's grace, he meets these wise men where they are. And then he's going to draw them to a place where they can be led By his word. In fact, he does that to all of us. God will oftentimes meet us where we are. Bring us to a place where we can be led by his word. To where it is that we have been going after him. Part of that story is that, listen, you're either looking for a savior you're expending all your energy trying to be your own savior that's one of the things you find out about it well in matthew 2 these magi show up and uh, they've come to worship the one who was born king of the jews we saw a star we came to worship him and then all of a sudden you hear in the text that this is what happens it says when herod the king heard this he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And so, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he he brings all the theologians. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Have you guys ever heard about this Messiah to be born? They told him. Oh, yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And they pull out the scroll and they read Micah chapter 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd to my people Israel. They quote the ancient text. About an ancient king who was gonna come. A text by this time that was 700 years old. And they say, oh, yeah, we we know about this. Everybody knows about this. It's 700 years old, and Bethlehem is the place. Probably the most disappointing thing for the Magi is that they find in Jerusalem there are religious leaders who know all about Jesus. When they asked what the Scriptures taught, they didn't hesitate. They knew right where to go. But even though they knew all about the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, it had no impact on them at all. They didn't even bother to travel five miles down the road to check out the story. They didn't have any faith, and it produced an apathetic indifference. See, here's what's interesting. We see that all around us. I mean, there's hardly a place that you'll go in the the Western world, although you can probably find in most parts of the world. In December, trees will be put up and lights are on trees and people will exchange gifts and they'll take time off of work and pull out the music they haven't listened to in a year, and watch the old movies, and we'll all have a Merry Christmas in whatever language it is we speak on our lips. And in the one way we're acknowledging... What the world's acknowledged for 2,000 years is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped into history. In fact, it was such a seismic event on a cosmic scale that we speak about before Christ and after his death when we count the years And while this is part of the common knowledge, it has such little impact on so many. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe Christmas is, with all the sentiment and nostalgia, maybe it's your favorite time of year. And that's okay. I I like sentiment. I, I like nostalgia. But Christmas is so much more than that. Maybe it's like Chad said this morning. This is the worst time of year. This is the worst December that you've ever found yourself rolling into and you cannot wait for it to be over that the darkness has moved in and has settled upon your land. And Merry Christmas seems like a mockery to you. Listen, for, for wherever you are, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is for you. It's the, it's the remembering of the, of the ancient king, the eternal king, who stepped into the story, who, who stepped into the history, and has forever changed it. And it's like we heard this morning as Chuck read in the, uh, the, the communion text, Eat and drink this together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes, until he appears, until he returns. We long for the King to come. One writer says about the Matthew 2. Matthew 2, looking back even at Micah 5. The whole purpose of the passage, the point Matthew's trying to make is worldly wisdom told them they needed a king. Worldly wisdom told it they needed something. But it couldn't tell them how to find the king. Couldn't tell them where he was. They had to go to the word of God. It had to be revealed to them. It's what Micah's doing. He's revealing to those in his day, those in Matthew's day, those in our day. Revealing to us. What's that yearning? What's that longing? Where where do you find the answer to that? Well, the answer is Jesus. The eternal king, the, the echoes that you've longed for your whole life. He's come, and he's coming. You see, that's the whole thing about Christmas. God comes to you. He, he comes to you. He appears to you. He, he comes at you. You don't, you don't find God. God reveals himself. We don't find him through science or worldly wisdom. We know we need something. But without God's Word, without God coming in the flesh and dwelling among us, fulfilling the prophecy spoken by God, and then living that out and preparing us for the eternity that awaits, that we wouldn't know. There's got to be faith. God has come to you in His Son. Will you believe? It's the whole question of the Bible. Will you believe? Will you receive Him as He came? I'll end with this. One of my one of my favorite things at this time of year um, is. Uh, Uh, the Behold the Lamb of God uh, music that's done by Andrew Peterson and uh, those that are his guests. And at the beginning of that, uh, right as it starts, and you can hear it on the old recordings, he he reads from the introduction of uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And if you don't have that, Jesus Storybook Bible, um, it's, written for kids, Um, if your kids don't have it or your grandkids don't, buy that for all the people you know for Christmas. It's a great Christmas present, and I say that because you'll be blessed by it more than anybody you buy it for. It's so great. This is how the intro of the Jesus Storybook Bible goes. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure about a, it's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of, uh, wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it, it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle. The the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. I hope that this Christmas, you look, you gaze into the beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Beyond the sentiment, beyond the nostalgia, to the hope that the Savior has come. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray you'd... You give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and Father, you awaken in us again that eternity that you've set in our hearts, the, the longing that we have, the, the yearning for what is eternal. Father, I pray that by your word you would show us so clearly the picture of your son who came and took on flesh and died for our sin and rose again from the grave to new life. And then, Father, has promised that he will return. And so I pray we would be people who look for his appearing, who long for it, who hope and count on it. And that, Father, by faith we would be the people who believe. We ask these things the only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.